You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. I love westerns. The other day I was watching El Dorado with John Wayne. And I was shocked when I noticed that my 12-year-old daughter was watching with me. In fact, she got up to go get some popcorn. She says, Dad, pause it. And she sat there and watched that old western with me and loved it. There's a variety of reasons I like westerns, but you know how they generally go. Bad guy rides into town, he's mean, he's cruel, he's evil, he mistreats people, he oppresses people, and the town's folk need someone to stand for them and stand against that evil. And at the end of the movie, The good guy gets the bad guy. And it always feels good, doesn't it? It just always feels great. That's why I love Westerns. Well, this morning, as we work our way through the book of Daniel, we're going to see how God predicted a moment in human history where he would make a way... For our greatest enemy to be defeated. And it's a striking prediction and prophecy embedded at the end of Daniel chapter 9. So would you turn there with me, Daniel chapter 9. We are continuing our study line by line, verse by verse, this wonderful Old Testament book. Daniel chapter 9. Nine. We'll begin reading in verse 20. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. When you found your place, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word, which I'll remind you is truth with no mixture of error. This is the God-breathed Scriptures that we are studying There in Daniel chapter 9, verse 20, the Bible says, While I was speaking and praying, this is Daniel saying this, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we pause in this moment recognizing our utter dependence upon you. 
we need you. And we believe that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So Holy Spirit, would you in these moments grant us the gift of illumination that our eyes might be opened and that we might be moved to respond to what you show us. God, I pray for transformation. I pray for life change. I pray that we'll leave today different than when we walked in. I pray, God, that we will leave today knowing we have met with the living God. So would you work among us by your grace and always and only for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Last week we looked at Daniel's example, specifically his example in the areas of, or the area of prayer. He provides for us in chapter 9 what it looks like to spend time alone with God, reading God's word, then responding to him in prayer. We talked about his prayer last week, but to kind of sum up his prayer request, look what it says in verse 16. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because our sins, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant, to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Daniel was reading the prophet Jeremiah. And he saw where Jeremiah predicted or pronounced that God's people would be in captivity, taken from their homeland, for 70 years. And Daniel knew that it was about 70 years since he had been taken into captivity as a young Hebrew boy. So in light of God's word to him, he begins to pray and ask God to bring about this 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 major movement whereby God's people could return to their homeland and rebuild the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and reestablish the sacrificial system there at the temple. He's saying to the Lord, would you, would you make your face shine upon Jerusalem once again? That's your city. We want to worship you again in your city, at your temple, as your people. That's his prayer request. As we just read in verses 20 through 23, God has an answer for Daniel. And don't you find it interesting that Gabriel comes with the answer before he ever stops praying? He's not even done with his prayer yet, and here comes Gabriel. Now, Gabriel is an angel, and every time we see Gabriel surface in the Scriptures, he's always coming with a message. So it seems like Gabriel's primary role was to carry messages directly from God to his servants. And Daniel is still praying. There it says, While I was speaking in prayer, verse 21, the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand. He's going to give me an answer to my prayers. He made me understand, speaking with me, and then he begins to share the the answer 
that God has for his prayers. Now, just a quick parenthetical statement here. Don't you wish when you were praying God would send Gabriel with an immediate answer? Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, you're praying, uh, Lord, why are, why are Pastor Wade's sermons so long? Here comes Gabriel right away to give you an answer, right? And you, you ask God questions about life and about mysteries and you have requests and here comes Gabriel knocking at your door to give you an immediate answer. Boy, that would be nice. And it's striking, isn't it, that, that God esteems Daniel in such a way that an angel brings the direct answer. I like the way Dr. Stephen Miller says that Daniel's fervent prayer, humble spirit, and commitment touched the heart of God. Hey, and by the way, that's a good goal for our prayer lives, isn't it? That we touch the heart of God. And in the the, the, the answer that he gives him, starting there in verse 24 through the end of the chapter, God wants Daniel to understand something very, very important. He wanted him to understand that restoration of the temple is coming, restoration of Jerusalem is coming, but God is up to something much bigger than just that. God is up to redeeming a lost and fallen humanity. God is planning to finally and utterly defeat our greatest enemy, which is sin. And he helps him to understand that in the remainder of this chapter. So in the answer to Daniel's prayer, we see God's remedy for sin. And there are four four parts to this, this remedy for sin. First of all, God's remedy for sin was predicted. God's remedy for sin was predicted. Look what it says in verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So God gives him a timeline so that he could he could understand when God was going to put these events into motion, starting with the restoration of the temple and the restoration of the city, Jerusalem. And he starts there by saying, 70 weeks are decreed. Literally, that phrase is uh, 70 units of seven, or 70 sevens. Scholars believe this refers to weeks. And so 70 sevens is 490 years. He gives him a 490-year timeline to consider as God works out his plan of redemption. Now, it gets a little complex here because scholars disagree on just how this time period is to be organized or to be understood. In fact, this week I had calculators out. I felt like the guy on Beautiful Mind, there were figures everywhere. I was trying to figure out these different numbers. And, and, uh, and there are different ways that people come at this passage. But it's interesting to note that Gabriel divides up these 490 years into three sub-periods. He's going to kind of divide it up for us, help us understand what the 490 years are all about. First of all, he tells us in verse 25... There will be seven weeks of years. The first time period is 49 years. Look what it says there in, in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. So the first time period is 
uh, 49 years. Then he mentions another time period, 62 weeks of years, which comes out to 434 years. Look what he says in verse 25. Then for 62 weeks it should be built again with squares and moat, with square and moat, but in a troubled time. So he mentions under this banner of 490 years, a segment of 49 years, followed by a segment of 434 years. But then in verse 26, he mentions a final seven years. Look what it says in verse 26. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. To the end shall be war. Desolations are decreed. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he should put an end to sacrifice and offering. The one week there is seven years. That's a, a time period of seven years. So he says, all right, Daniel, 490 years is the big picture time period. And then that's divided into 49 years followed by 434 years followed by seven years. Everybody with me? All right. Now hang in there. Now notice, after the first two periods, which is the 49 years followed by the 434 years, the Messiah would come. Look what it says there in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, that shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. After the 49 years and the 434 years, the Messiah would come. Now, there are many different calculations and dates scholars use to figure out exactly how this time period plays out. But here's what I believe is a plausible explanation to show you how specific these numbers are. The first set of sevens, the first seven sevens, 49 years, commence with a command to rebuild Jerusalem. This is a decree made by Artaxerxes I. It's found in Ezra chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. This happened in 458 B.C. So uh, Gabriel's saying to Daniel, I'm going to rebuild my city. I'm going, to, I'm going to restore temple worship. And there's going to be a decree that sets this in motion, that sets these, these 49 years into motion. And many scholars believe this deals with the decree from Artaxerxes, the Persian king, to allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. That means that this would have come to an end in 409 B.C., which is about the time period it took for them to go and complete the work of the temple. The next 62 sevens, 434 years... Extend, stay with me, extend from the first group of sevens, the 49 years, to the end of the first group of sevens, which is Christ's first coming. Now, if you do the math, if you go from 409 BC and add the, the 434 years, the 62 weeks of years, you know what it comes out to? It comes out to AD 26, when most scholars believe Jesus was baptized and, and commenced his public ministry. Now, there are different starting points that scholars use and, and different points in the life and ministry of Jesus that they arrive at, but the big picture is this. The Lord is saying to Daniel, I'm going to do a work. I'm going to restore Jerusalem. I'm going to restore temple worship. 
But even beyond that, I'm going to send someone. And the dates, in a very breathtaking way, fall during the life and ministry of Jesus Christ himself. Or let me say it like this. It was predicted with amazing specificity that after a period of 483 years, God would provide a final remedy for sin. He's sending his Messiah, the good guy, to defeat the enemy that we all have, which is sin. Now this is just one of many passages in the Old Testament that speak with great specificity about the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Hundreds of years before Jesus walked on this earth, speaking prophetically with with great clarity and insight and detail. And here in this passage, when you do all the math and you get your calculators out and you figure it all out, he's talking about Jesus coming to this earth. But very quickly, what about the final subperiod, the seven years that are mentioned here at the end of chapter 9? Look what it says there in verse 26. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week, half of the three and a half years of the seven, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolate. This passage says, after the time of the Messiah, there's going to be a seven-year period of horror and tribulation. Now, this doesn't line up with anything we know historically about the time of Jesus. So most scholars believe there is a break in the fulfillment of the prophecy. And these last seven years speak of the, the great tribulation that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 24. According to scholars, the fulfillment of this prophecy of the seven years is suspended while the gospel is preached to the Gentiles and the full number of the churches brought in a church encompassing people from all walks of life, all races, and all nations. And then when it's time, the seven years of great tribulation will commence persecution for God's people. And in this, in, in this view, the last week that Daniel speaks of here would coincide with the seven-year tribulation mentioned elsewhere. I think there's support for this in Jesus' reference to the abomination that causes desolation mentioned in this passage, verse 27, as well as in Daniel 12, 11, Matthew 24, 15, and 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. All these passages speak of a a moment of abomination. And 1 Thessalonians 2 indicates this is when the Antichrist in the seven-year tribulation will rise up, seat himself in the temple, and demand worship. That time is coming. Blasphemy against God. And those seven years are mentioned here. Again, not something that happens immediately after the time of, the, of Christ on this earth, but something that will come eventually. This lines up with what we studied already about the Antichrist in chapter 7. So here's what I want you to see. God knows the future. And he sends Gabriel with a very specific prophecy with, specific, with a specific number of years to say, I will send my Messiah. God's remedy 
was predicted. Secondly, God's remedy for sin is a person, is a person. Look what it says there in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat. But in a troubled time, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one, there it is again, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Notice God says here, I'm going to put an end to sin, verse 24. I'm going to put an end to sin. And the end of sin directly correlates with one that I will send. Now notice here, the one that God would send is called the anointed one. In the Hebrew language, it's Mashiach. It's where we get the word Messiah from. In the the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, when they translated the word Mashiach or Messiah into Greek, they translated it with the word Christos or Christ. So whenever you see the word Christ in the New Testament, you're seeing the Greek translation of the word Messiah. The Bible says that God will send this anointed one, this Messiah, this one chosen and sent by God with a special purpose. Way back in Genesis 3.15, the Lord says, even though humanity is fallen, sin has entered the world, I will send someone, the seed of a woman, who will put an end to the reign of sin. And all throughout the Old Testament, God begins to to show little glimpses of this one he would send, what he would be like, what he would do, the Messiah. The Messiah. And he says here, Gideon says to Daniel, I'm going to send the Messiah who will come and put an end to sin. This is why Matthew 16, 16 is so significant. You remember When Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi, he's talking to his disciples. He says, who do do people say that I am? And the disciples say, well, some say you're Elijah or one of the prophets. Some say you're John the Baptist. There's different views out there about who you are, Jesus. And Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ, Messiah, Christos. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter is saying there, You are the one God told us he was going to send in passages like Daniel 9. You're the anointed one. You're the one sent from God. But not only is he called the anointed one, he's called the prince. The prince. says there in verse 25, says, From the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. The Messiah is called a prince, a statement of royalty, which is a reminder that Jesus came to reign. This foreshadows the fact that Jesus will demand absolute loyalty as king. So how's God going to put an end to sin? All of our greatest enemies. How's he going to do that? Through a person. This person is Messiah. This person is king. Sent and sovereign, anointed and authoritative, a representative and a ruler, Messiah and monarch, Christ and king. The remedy for sin is a person. Third, quickly, God's remedy for sin came at a great price. We get more details in verse 26. It says... 
after the 62 weeks, this lands about the time of Jesus' public ministry commencing. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. This, this promised Messiah, this prince, this king, this ruler, this anointed one would be cut off. Then it says, and shall have nothing. I want you to see two things about this Messiah whose name is Jesus. He was, first of all, abandoned. Think about Jesus. Jesus left the splendor and glory of heaven. And think about what was happening in heaven. He was surrounded by angelic beings who were constantly praising his greatness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. They were praising Jesus, unceasing worship. His worth was always celebrated in heaven. Jesus left the splendor and glory and worship of heaven and took on human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary and was born of Mary as the God-man, fully God and fully man. And he lived a perfect, matchless life. And he put himself in a position where he would experience loss. Think about his ministry. Three years of public ministry. Investing in 12 men and others. Pouring his life into them. Preparing them to take the gospel to the very end of the earth. Living with them, teaching them, instructing them, correcting them, encouraging them. He gave three years of his life. And what did he have to show for it? When the Jewish religious leaders coaxed the Roman authorities to arrest him. And have him beaten and crucified. He was abandoned. One of those 12 disciples betrayed him. His name was Judas. One of those 12 disciples, Peter, spokesman for the group, denied him three times when asked if he identified with Christ. And the rest of them, they all fled for their lives when Jesus was arrested. So here's Jesus who left the unceasing worship of heaven. His worth is always being magnified. And here on earth, he's abandoned. And left to himself. It says there, he shall have nothing. This anointed one, this prince, shall have nothing. That phrase, have nothing, could be translated, he will have no one. And that's certainly the case of Jesus' ministry when he was betrayed and arrested. But not only was he abandoned, he was crucified. Look what it says there in verse 26. This anointed one shall be cut off. Cut off. This anointed Messiah, Prince, King, sent from God, he would be cut off. He would suffer great harm. The same word is used over in Isaiah 53 verse 8. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 53, verse 8. Speaking of Jesus. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off. 
out of the land of the living. He was, he was killed. He was crucified. Stricken for the transgression of my people. The Messiah would come to this earth at a specified time and would experience abandonment, betrayal, denial, and he would be cut off. After Jesus was arrested and tried in a kangaroo court and condemned by Pilate to die, he was flogged with the cat of nine tails. He was nailed to a cruel Roman cross and hung there from nine in the morning to three in the afternoon, bearing the sin of the world. Not only great physical anguish, but spiritual anguish as he took the wrath of God in our place. He was cut off. This speaks of the cross. Now think about how shocking this all would have sounded to Daniel's ears. God's going to send someone, a Messiah. He's going to send someone, a prince. And then he'll be cut off. And Daniel's probably thinking, what in the world This Messiah's time on earth, by all appearances, will seem to have been in vain. I like the way the Old Testament scholar Van Groningen says it. Their promised royal one, the anointed king given by Yahweh to to come as a mediator of the covenant, is to be put to death as a pauper. You read Daniel 9, and it looks like utter defeat, doesn't it? And there's no doubt Daniel's scratching his head. And and there's no doubt that when Jesus was crucified and taken off the cross and put in the tomb, the, the disciples were scratching their head. This is the Messiah sent from God, the prince, the king, and he's dead? He succumbed to the plots and plans of religious leaders and a Roman governor? He's dead? He's dead? Surely they would have been thinking utter defeat. But then Sunday morning happened. As the disciples came to check on the tomb, the the stone was rolled away and Jesus Christ had risen from the grave. He was alive and had defeated not only sin, but had defeated death. And so what looks like utter defeat Defeat here in Daniel 9 ends up in victory because we know how it ends, right? Jesus died for our sins. He was buried early on the third day. He rose from the grave. That's good news. And so God's remedy for sin came at a great price. God the Father gave his only son to come and die for our sins. That's how sin could be dealt with. Which leads to number four, and we'll be through. We said that God's remedy for sin was predicted. God's remedy for sin is a person. God's remedy for sin came at a great price. But fourth, God's remedy for sin gives us peace. Look what it says back in verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. So Daniel, I'm going to... I'm going to do some things in Jerusalem. I'm going to lead in in having the the temple rebuilt and 
temple worship restored. But beyond that, I'm dealing with sin and iniquity once and for all. And he says there, he put an end to sin. He would atone for iniquity. The word atone simply means to pay for, to pay for. You and I have sinned against a holy God. We deserve his wrath, his judgment. But Jesus came to take our punishment for us. He took God's judgment in our place. He, he paid the penalty. He, he atoned for our sins. That's what the word atone means. Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sin. This gives us two things. First of all, this gives us peace with God. It gives us peace with God. He says there, God's going to put an end to sin. He will atone for iniquity. That means if you embrace the Messiah, Jesus, as your personal Lord and Savior, his atoning work is applied to your life, and you get to experience the fact that your sins are forgiven. Jesus paid for them, so they're forgiven. They're washed away by his blood. This gives us peace with God. There's no sin barrier between us and a holy God. It's been taken away by the blood of Christ. Now we can draw near to him, have a relationship with him, whereby we can call him father and friend. Gives us peace with God. Secondly, this gives us peace of conscience. Peace of conscience. When you know your sins have been forgiven, You no longer have to live under the weight of those sins. Jesus paid the price. He atoned for those sins. So you don't have to. And you don't have to live in sin and guilt if you know Christ. Because your sins have been taken away. They've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. So atonement gives us peace with God. Theologians call this propitiation. The wrath of God satisfied so we could be forgiven. Jesus dying, taking the penalty for our sin. And atonement also gives us peace of conscience. Our sins are taken away. Theologians call this expiation. Your sins are no longer held to your account. You no longer have to live under the weight and guilt and shame of your sin. And this was beautifully pictured over in Leviticus 16. In Leviticus 16, we see the day of atonement where the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies one time per year. And the Bible says on this day of atonement, all the people of Israel would gather around the the tabernacle or the temple, and the high priest would bring forth two goats. The first goat would be sacrificed. His blood would be shed, and he would go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, and he would throw that blood on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, a symbolic way of showing that guilty sinners need a, an innocent sacrifice. One must die to cover the sins of the guilty. And the, the death of the goat was a, a picture, a symbol of, of innocence dying for guilt. And the people knew that that goat's being killed because of our sin. His, his blood's being shed because of our sin. And it pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus dying on the cross for us. So the first goat pictured propitiation. Wrath falling on another so we can be saved. But what about the second goat? The second goat, the high priest would would come into the goat and put his hands on the head of the goat and begin to confess the sins of Israel. 
thereby symbolically transferring the sins of the people onto this poor goat, right? Can you imagine if we did that today? If we had a goat in the room and I put my hands on the goat and I start, I start confessing all of your sins to the goat, all of my sins. And, and the people are watching this, this transfer of their sin to the goat. And then the goat symbolically was then led out of the camp into the wilderness, never to return. And that was a way for God to picture, not only am I sending someone who will die for your sins, taking my wrath for you, but because of what he will do, I will take your sins away. No longer held to your account, You no longer have to live under the burden and guilt and shame. Just like this this goat is bearing the sin away, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has borne our sins away. That's expiation. And so the question becomes, God says what he says here. He's going to send a Messiah, a prince, who will make an end to sin who will atone for iniquity. He's going to deal with our greatest enemy. And if you have personally responded to Jesus by faith embracing him as your Lord and Savior, then your sins are forgiven. Jesus took your punishment for you. And your sins have been taken away. No longer to be held to your spiritual account, which brings this question. If this is true, and it is, why do we struggle with guilt from our past? So many born-again believers in Christ just can't get past their past. They've called on the name of Jesus. They've invited Him into their life to be their personal Lord and Savior. They understand forgiveness they still take on the weight and burden of their sin. Why do we have anything but peace when our greatest need has been met? You say, Pastor Wade, what about my sin? Based upon this passage, it's atoned for. The penalty has been paid for another. You say, what about my past? Washed in the blood of the Lamb. What about my shame? Listen, you are clean and pure in Christ. Your sin has been taken into the wilderness. Amen? If your sin comes up in your heart and your mind, it's not because God brought it up. In fact, the Bible says God has put your sins into a sea of forgetfulness. It's almost like we as Christians have to fight to believe what the Bible says. To believe this stuff. Our sins really are forgiven in Christ. Our sins are taken away in Christ. Praise the Lord. Next week, we're going to gather and celebrate the Lord's Supper. The broken body, shed blood of Christ. It's a way to remind each other This is true. Jesus died. It matters for my life. And so back to Daniel. Daniel's praying for restoration. God, would you move so that your people can leave captivity? 
and go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple and practice worship there, practice the sacrificial system. And it's as, it's as if the Lord is saying, Daniel, I know that's what you want and it's going to happen, but I've got some bigger plans than that. I'll deal with the temple and I'll deal with Jerusalem, but I'm also going to send someone who will deal with your sin and atone for your iniquity. It's like God saying, you long for the temple so that people can meet with God. God himself will come and dwell among you. You long to practice the sacrificial system. This one will offer the ultimate sacrifice of himself to which all the other sacrifices point. Final quote, D.A. Carson says, For 70 years Daniel had longed for the restoration of the city and temple of God. Now that it was about to take place, his attention was directed to a more distant and loftier peak in the history of redemption. Daniel, do you see, do you see the temple will be rebuilt? Do you see that Jerusalem will be restored? Do you see that I will preserve my people? But, but Daniel, keep looking, keep looking. Look beyond the temple. Look through the corridors of time. You will see the cross. The one I will send to put a decisive end to sin. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.